quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Live from the New York Stock Exchange, I'm Paula Newton in for Julia Chatterley. And here is what you need to know right now. There was no hanging around in June. No, that jobs report is in. Jobs surged as the U.S. economy got to work. And quite a jump start for the rover, recharging that rover. It is a fact what the U.K. auto industry needed. We'll tell you all about Jaguar going electric. And, you know, they've come a long way from selling books. Can you even remember when they were selling books? Amazon is a quarter century today, and it is Friday, and this is First Move. Welcome to First Move. You know, it is the day after the July 4th holiday, and I'm here to tell you that the fireworks are not over yet. And this is why that latest jobs report, what a stunner. It shows the U.S. adding a greater than expected 224,000 jobs last month. Now, the report shows solid employment right across most major industries. I would say save for retail there. Job gains for April and May, though, were revised slightly lower. Now, in the meantime, this is what's key here. The unemployment rate ticked up to 3.7%. That was from 3.6%. And wage growth was tepid, which we'll discuss because that means the Fed may not be on tap in terms of trying to tamp down inflation. Now, futures, however, are pointing to a lower open for stocks right across the board after this report. And I'll tell you why. It is because they are wondering if that Fed will stay on the sidelines for July instead of having to move. This means that all the major U.S. in averages are set to pull back. Remember, we were at record highs on thin volume on Wednesday. Um, now, investors snapped up both stocks and bonds on the hopes that the Fed will begin cutting rates this month. As we're saying, this puts all of that into question. Will it tempt, or, tempt uh, enthusiasts to stay there even at these very high evaluations or will they decide that the Fed is absolutely not going to move in July? The jobs report, of course, our major driver for today. Paul Monaco watching all of this. And Paul, I like when you break this down because you are looking at the big number, but you're also looking at the numbers behind that major number. Any surprises there for you? I think the big surprise is the nice rebound that we had, Paula, in jobs growth after, um, you know, tepid numbers for May, which really led a lot of people to believe that the, a, the Fed would cut interest rates definitely in July. It was a slam dunk or so we thought. And not only that, but maybe they would even go as far as a half point rate cut. I think now that is in question. I still believe the Fed probably will lower rates at the end of the month by a quarter of a point because there still are other 
concerns for the global economy, trade tensions, which uh, you know, haven't completely gone away. Other data looks like it is starting to soften a little bit in manufacturing and housing. So I think the Fed can justify a quarter point cut, essentially taking back the one they did last December, which a lot of people think might have been too aggressive. But after that, I think all bets are off with regards to how much more the Fed needs to cut rates in an economy, at least for the labor market, that still looks pretty solid. Yeah, I find it fascinating that the market was able to talk itself into the fact they might even go down 50 basis points. But here we are. Uh, Paul, likely they will go in with that quarter rate cut, but some people still here unsure. Paul Monica there breaking down those numbers for us. Appreciate it. Um, now, Samsung, bad warning here for this company. It had warned that profits would be low. In fact, profits were 56 percent lower uh, in Q2. It was ho- uh, hit, of course, by a global downturn, but specifically hurt a lot on trade as well and we will get to that. The interesting thing here is that the decrease in profits were not as bad as analysts uh, were predicting. Sharice Pham is up for us late, and I appreciate it. In terms of what's going on here, it is a bit of cold comfort, though, considering that headline number 56% down in terms of profits. Yeah, they did manage to beat market expectations, but that's because market expectations were so low, Paula. A couple things that were driving this massive profit plunge. We had a slowing demand in memory chips. We also had poor smartphone sales. And yes, of course, the U.S.-China trade war does play a factor here. Samsung had recorded record profits for years thanks to memory chip sales, but now, of course, demand is slowing and the market is oversupplied. That has forced Samsung to cut prices in order to drive sales. Over in the smartphone business, uh, their latest flagship smartphone hasn't really won over customers, right? So we've got the Galaxy S10, weak sales there. That is going to hit Samsung's sales revenue. And of course, there is the big elephant in the room, and that is Huawei. Washington added Huawei to a trade blacklist back in May, uh, barring U.S. companies from selling tech and components to Huawei. Uh, And that is going to have an effect on the global supply chain. Now, Trump did Uh, ease up on restrictions, uh, saying that he would allow U.S. companies to sell to Huawei again to get U.S.-China trade talks back on track. Details, however, are still unclear on that. So uh, if if these U.S. restrictions continue, that will further affect the memory chip uh, supply market in coming months, and that will hit Samsung's bottom line even further, Paula. Yeah, and they were looking for a rebound in that in 2020. And I want to talk to you about that, Sharice. When it gets to a question like Huawei and the fact that there are still the trade tensions, could they give any guidance? I mean, clearly, they were blaming Huawei for a lot of the problems, uh, even though they were sidestepping that smartphone issue. This was just an earnings guidance. So they were staying pretty quiet in terms of details. They did say that one of the reasons they beat market estimates was a one-time sales bump in display. But what analysts are saying is that the Huawei problems are already starting to both benefit and hurt Samsung. So on the upside, they're going to probably win over ex-Huawei smartphone users. Um, On the downside, the memory chip uh, market is going to be hurt. But what's really interesting, and we'll be watching for this going forward, is how Samsung's network equipment business will be affected because Samsung has been ramping up 5G network equipment. Huawei wants to be a leader in 5G network equipment, but that 
is where U.S. restrictions are really targeting Huawei. Pretty unlikely from what analysts are saying that the Trump administration will lift restrictions, allowing U.S. companies to continue selling equipment so Huawei can make 5G networks. And once again, Samsung really in the best position to benefit from some of Huawei's problems. Yeah, and they certainly will. We'll continue to keep an eye on guidance for 2020, as you say, Sharice, as they continue to try and take on Huawei, uh, basically where they're hurting right now. Sharice, thanks so much for staying up late. We appreciate it. And on to the embattled UK auto industry now. It is getting a much-needed jolt of industry, I would say, from an unlikely source here. Jaguar Land Rover says it will build electric vehicles in the UK. And this comes at an all-important plant just outside of Birmingham, England. Those, This plant will in fact protect thousands of jobs, jobs that are at issue now when we have Brexit front and centre. Uh, Anna Stewart joins me now live from London. Anna, th- this comes as a surprise, not so much in terms of the industry that they want to go into. We know that they've been eyeing those electric vehicles, and yet they are firmly giving the decision, Anna, is this firm that they will build this plant just outside Birmingham? They They are committing to it. So this will secure 2,700 jobs. It's millions of pounds. And the reason, as you said, it's so surprising is this is a company that is shedding thousands of jobs across Europe, undergoing a $3 billion restructuring plan. So why invest lots of money and make this commitment, given all the Brexit uncertainty around it? It is a dark, nebulous cloud on the horizon. No one knows how or when it will be resolved. But this is the thing. They say they're being almost forced to make this decision now. They've clearly held off making any investment decisions for some time. They've decided to go ahead with it. And electrification, as you say, is definitely where Jaguar Land Rover sees itself going. It's had terrible collapsing sales in diesel ever since Dieselgate. Uh, Their sales are abysmal in China. It's got Brexit uncertainty. It is looking to strengthen itself in this area. But the CEO made very clear today that Business cannot do this alone. It's going to need government to invest in, uh, you know, electric battery facilities in the UK. It's going to have to invest in infrastructure if their future is to survive. But this investment is to really go anywhere. They need massive investment as well from the government to make sure that electric is both affordable and convenient. And that will be interesting as, of course, the Brexit saga continues and, of course, uh, the leadership of the Tory party being contested there. And I have to ask you, though, we had a lot of doom and gloom predictions about Brexit, principally uh, from that UK auto industry. It has been suffering significantly. Is this a turnaround in the sense that if they get certainty from Brexit one way or another, can that industry start to rebound? interesting because Brexit isn't obviously the only problem with this industry. You are looking at the slowdown in China, the overall trade war, also the fact that there is a collapse in diesel sales and actually a structural shift maybe away from people owning cars. So there are other issues at play. But looking at the stats across Europe, you can see that the UK is being hit particularly hard and that is a lot to do with Brexit. Car production fell over 15% in May from the year before. Now it's actually the 12th consecutive month of decline. Uh, Business investment in this industry, in the car industry, fell 47% last year from the year before. And let me show you the job losses we've had announced this year. So Jaguar Land Rover itself, they announced 4,500 jobs would be lost in Europe, the majority of those in the UK. That's actually in addition to losing 1,800 in redundancies last year. Ford losing 12,000 jobs in Europe. Honda, 3,500 in the UK, closing a factory in Swindon. So yes, this is great news, this little piece of investment. Uh, The business minister here is heralding this as a vote of confidence in the UK auto industry. But it is really one vote and it really bucks the overall picture. 
so much perspective there. Uh, I, I think something to think about in terms <laughs> of a rebound. But you, you are true. A little disheartening when you actually break down those figures for us. Uh, Anna, thanks so much and have a great weekend. We appreciate it. And right now we turn to stories making headlines around the world. Iran is demanding the release of an oil tanker seized by Britain off the coast of Gibraltar. Now, Iran is calling it piracy. The UK says the Grace One was carrying Iranian oil to Syria. And that, they say, is a violation of EU sanctions. Now, Iran says British Marines seized the ship at the request of the U.S. Gibraltar, though, says the decision was made independently. Venezuela's opposition leader, Juan Guaido, has called for massive demonstration in the, demonstrations in the coming hours. Now, it comes on the heels of a new report from the U.N., and it is a significant one. It details torture of people who have been critical to the government of Nicolas Maduro. And, of course, it also says it has evidence of excessive force used during those demonstrations. And Joe Biden has dismissed Donald Trump as a, quote, bully and says he's ready to take him on. Now, the Democratic presidential hopeful made the comments during an exclusive sit-down interview with CNN's Chris Cuomo. The former vice president also shared his tactics for defeating President Trump. How do you beat him? I beat him by just pointing out who I am and who he is and what we're for and what he's against. This guy is a divider in chief. This guy is acting with racist policies. I'm looking forward to this, man. You walk behind me in a debate. Come here, man. No, you think I, you know me too well. I mean, I, I, the idea that I'd be intimidated by Donald Trump, he's the bully that I knew my whole life. He's the bully that I've always stood up to. Okay, that from uh, presidential hopeful Joe Biden. Coming up here on First Move, Fed Chair Jay Powell, of course, like us, watching those job reports closely. We'll ask what it could mean for interest rates, especially for July and a quarter century of Amazon. Can you believe it? The company turns 25 today's. Remember, started with just books. We'll discuss its gold stars, successes, but also the growing pains. Welcome back to First Move, and we are live here from the New York Stock Exchange as those blockbuster numbers, job numbers, were released today. Instead, though, futures continue to point lower. Why? Uh, they are looking at the Fed and wondering if they are going to move in July and through the next through the rest of the year as these numbers come in. And what are those numbers? 224,000 non-farm jobs were created in the U.S. last month. That's about 60,000 more jobs than expected. Key as well, the unemployment rate ticked up to 3.7% from 3.6%. This is a significant number as well that analysts will be looking at. Now, stocks, as I was saying, Looking to pull back from those record highs. Remember, we had those record highs on very thin volume, which can mean a very crazy day today as well, as we expect volume to continue to be quite low. Now, traders, of course, are concerned as to whether or not those very good job numbers will mean that the Fed will stay on the sidelines. Randy Frederick joins me now for his take on all this. Um, he is the vice president of trading and derivatives at Charles Schwab. Thanks for having me here on what most people were hoping would just be a long weekend. I'm going to bet Randy, that some traders will just take it as a long weekend trade for a couple hours and go, meh, back to the pool. What do you think, though? What was your reaction when you saw 224? 
Yeah, I think you're right, Paula. Um, in fact, on my drive into where I'm at right now, the traffic was completely, <laughs> there was nothing. So I think you're right. Everyone's taking it as a four-day weekend. So here's my take on it. Essentially, yes, we got a very nice, strong non-farm payroll number. I'm not real surprised. I'm, I'm not surprised that it was better than expected. I never really bought into the whole concept that when we had one weak number last month, that it was going to create a trend. If you remember, we had a very weak number back in February, and immediately within the next couple of months, that number came back. So overall, it shows not a whole lot of change in terms of the Labor Department uh, reports. Certainly, the unemployment rate ticked up a tenth, but you got to keep in mind the way those things are averaged, that happens sometimes. If we start to see a two or three tenths tick up over the course of a few months, then I think we have to start worrying. But given the number we got, uh, we're essentially, they're showing very little weakness at all in the labor market overall. And so where does this put the Fed? I mean, look, they've been consistently saying that they're data dependent. You see this number. They would have had an inkling that the number was going to be fairly strong. I mean, I was kind of surprised. I thought it was lunacy to say that the Fed might actually decrease by 50 basis points in July. Right. And yet, where do you think the Fed's looking now? So that's what changes. Um, I, again, I also never was of the belief that we would get a 50 basis point cut. A 25 basis point cut has been baked into the market at about a 100% probability for almost three solid months now. And what most people see that as is simply a reversal of the very last hike, which happened in December of last year, which most people believe probably should not have happened. So in some sense, there's almost no chance that's going to change. The probability of a 50 bips cut was only was a, was only about maybe 20, 25 percent at its peak. That will probably come down. But again, I don't think there was really any probability that was ever going to happen anyway. What we do know is that when the fake was in a hiking cycle, uh, when the Fed was in a hiking cycle, we had to have about a 65% probability or greater for them to actually move. So we never got to that point on the 50 uh, basis point cut. So I don't think that was a realistic possibility. But it does cause the market to tend to just to ease off a bit. But keep in mind, as you said earlier, the volume is very light. A lot of people are on vacation. And just two days ago, the S&P 500 is at an all-time high, which makes it very, very vulnerable yeah. to any kind of news that might cause it to ease up just a little bit. Yeah, and I want to talk a little bit about valuations, Hugh, as well. I want to also point out that the 10-year U.S. Treasury note did ease up over that 2% benchmark, right. as we saw that job numbers point out. Do you see a lot of significance in that? Well, 10% has been a little bit of a technical support line, but as you mentioned, we broke through that a couple of days ago, so I think a lot of people would like to see it hold there. Um, and in fact, what Treasuries have been telling us is that as the rates come down further than many people expected, is it's sort of trying to force the Fed's hand. Keep in mind, if the Fed does cut a quarter point, they cut it at the very short end, that's actually going to cause the curve to steepen just a little bit. What people are more concerned about is the curve flattening and inverting, so that will actually help that out. Gotcha. Good point, Randy. Uh, valuations. Let's talk about earnings. So now we're off the jobs numbers. We're on to earnings, which start uh, in about a week's time. You think those earnings numbers, from what I can tell from your analysis, might look a little bit weak for Q2? Yeah, so the expectation when we went into Q1 was that we would see earnings down about a percent and a half relative to Q1 of last year. What we actually got was about a percent and a half above. So it was a little better than expected. Similar situation going into Q2. Learning season is kind of just going to start maybe at the beginning of next week. We just finished the quarter. And the expectations are that we will have a very slight decline or potentially completely flat. I think we'll probably see something just slightly better than that. In general, 
Uh, corporations tend to uh, sort of lowball the the analysts a little bit so they can exceed the targets, and obviously there's plenty of reasons for that. One, it causes their stock price to go up. Many corporate leaders are shareholders of their own companies. Some compensation plans are based on the shareholder prices, so there's a lot of reasons for that. In fact, what you typically see is on on any on just about any given quarter, earnings per share tend to beat the Wall Street ex expectations. Anywhere from two-thirds to about three-quarters of all the companies in the S&P 500 typically will beat the expectations. So I think this quarter we're going to see a similar situation. Yes, it was a slightly lower number last quarter than what we saw the previous year, but it's kind of just getting back to long-term norms. So I would expect to see around two-thirds or so of them beat the earnings estimates, and probably around 50% will actually beat the revenue estimates as well. But that means essentially flat to a very modest gain relative to the previous year. Yeah, Randy, a lot to chew over there for the weekend. I suspect some people were going to wait till Monday to get that done. Randy, thanks so much for coming in on what most people You're are welcome. taking as a long holiday weekend. We'll continue to di digest those jobs numbers. And, yeah, it's a birthday for someone we all know. I'm not sure we all love them. Happy birthday, Amazon. The tech giant turns 25 today, a quarter century. These were very humble beginnings. I remember when we used to discuss the fact that Amazon had decimated bookstores. I don't have to tell you they are not just into books anymore. There have been some very memorable moments, though, along the way. Take a listen. beyond nostalgia, Claire Sebastian has been looking at, I, I looked at that video and thought, where did that come from? It looked like something that was pulled directly from Lawrence Welk. I mean, but 25 years quarter century we're talking 25 years yeah it's a ripe old age for an internet company Paula. i was thinking back in 1994 it was three years until i even got my first email address so this company has been around uh, in terms of internet companies for a really long time and obviously very humble beginnings it began with just ten thousand dollars of jeff bezos's own money it was originally called cadabra interestingly but that uh, apparently was too easily confused with the word cadaver so eventually they settled uh, on amazon but it's come a long way uh, from books as you say it's now not only uh, the everything store of the internet it's a logistics giant it's a it's a web hosting company it's a real player in entertainment and paula jeff bezos has so much money that he has a billion dollars a year to spend on what is essentially a hobby space travel but uh we've been trawling through the archives uh, in the lead up to this anniversary and we found one clip from jeff bezos speaking to my colleague hala garani back in 2000 uh, and this has aged particularly well take a listen if you look at stock prices over a three-month period, you're just a short-term investor. And Amazon.com has never been a good investment for short-term investors, and I don't think it ever will be. Now, boy, was he right about that, Paula. If you'd had the stomach to invest in Amazon in 1997 when it went public and stick it out through the last 25 years, which would have taken a very strong stomach through the dot-com bubble, you would now have uh, almost $1.3 million. So I think a lot of us will be kicking ourselves that we didn't do that. Ouch, Claire. That is not a good way to go into the weekend, but here we go anyway. Amazon, we've been talking about a lot of its successes, and yet even today, a lot of concern about is it just too big? And there are a lot of challenges for this company as it continues to, to really change quite a bit going forward. 
Yeah, I think uh, this is probably the biggest challenge Amazon faces going forward is that their size is now something uh, of a liability for them. Just today, as you say, we see in the UK, the competition uh, authorities have put a hold on their potential investment in food delivery business Deliveroo because of concerns that, that the investment is actually a takeover bid by another name. And here in the US, Paula, uh, in the lead up to the 2020 elections, it's attracting a lot of criticism from candidates on both sides. Take a listen. You'll all be delighted to know that Amazon, company that made almost $11 billion last year in profits, paid how much in federal income tax? You can be an umpire, run the platform, or you can have a team in the game, run one of the businesses competing with the other businesses. But you don't get to do both at the same time. So, So here's my pitch. I just want to break those two things apart. Amazon has the money to pay the fair rate at the post office, which would be much more than they're paying right now. The other thing is a lot of retail businesses all over the country are going out of business. So that's a different problem. I mean, I think we can look at some of the companies that have fallen by the wayside, as the president uh, was saying, since Amazon has has really cemented its rise uh, in retail. Some some big names of their time, like Circuit City, like Borders, like Sears uh, and Toys R Us. Uh, But going forward, look, it's not just a political pawn. Regulation is a real challenge. I think that's probably the biggest challenge that Amazon will face over the next 25 years of its existence. Yeah, it will certainly be interesting to see how Amazon and Jeff Bezos himself navigates uh, through all of this regulatory uncertainty. Claire Sebastian, that was nice. It was nice to look back. (laughs) Appreciate that, Claire. Thanks so much. And as I was telling you, futures are still pointing lower and kind of picking up there. As I said, we could be in store for some real chaos here as the volume is thin. We will be right back with the market open in just a few minutes. move. I'm Paula Newton, live from the New York Stock Exchange. And yes, that was the opening bell on a jobs report Friday. And what a jobs report it was. As expected, U.S. stocks, though, are falling from their record highs as this market opens in early trade. After today's stronger than expected jobs report, it did indicate that 224,000 jobs were created. That means the unemployment rate also tipped up slightly to 3.7%. Job gains for April and May, though, were also revised lower. Now, we were talking earlier about those uptick in Treasury yields as well. That was after today's report. Ten-year yields are, again, above 2%. That's up over 4%, folks, as traders reevaluate their prediction that the Fed might even cut the rate by 50 basis points. We can maybe, safe, maybe safely say that that is right off the table now. Our Rana Fruhar is here watching it all for us as well. Thanks so much for coming in on what possibly could have been a long holiday weekend for you, Rana. We ruined that. I, um, I'm always inter- here for you, Paula. You are indeed. And, and, and Rana, to ask you, if you're the Fed, you're a central banker looking at this jobs number right now. This is a Fed, remember, that says it is data dependent. What is the Fed thinking? 
I think this is a really strong number. I think it's tough in the face of this number to justify a cut. Now, the one caveat to that would be if you look out and think, all right, this is a great report, but we're looking probably at the next one or two jobs report at being, uh, being a bit weaker. We're looking at a lot of data suggesting that the second half of the year could be weaker. You could potentially argue for a kind of insurance cut uh, to keep the markets high. That's certainly what President Trump and his advisors would like. But it's going to be very political, Paula. I mean, the Fed is in such a tough position. There's this dichotomy between Wall Street and Main Street. You see that today with, you know, great jobs report, and yet the markets are falling because they're worried about a rate, uh, rate hike. Yeah, and I think at this point, many people had, had spoken about the central bank having raised rates and that maybe that was a mistake. This is a very strong number now. Ron, I don't have to remind you, we are at a record expansion point for the U.S. economy. It just keeps yep. chugging away. We're in record territory this month. And yet a survey, a recent survey of CFOs said that almost half of them expect a recession in 2020. Why? What are they seeing in the data? Well, you know, just earlier, um, you put up that chart showing that inverted bond curve, right? You know, long rates and short rates are moving in a way that historically would suggest recession. I mean, all the data points to this. All the, also, we should, we should say that not only is this an incredibly long recovery, it's the longest in recorded history uh, since something like 1847, you know, when basically when they started keeping records. So you, you got to think that what goes up at some stage is going to come down. Now, the president... Uh, is going to try to do everything he can. I mean, you see Peter Navarro, his trade advisor, going on and saying, we've got to keep rates low. He's going to want to try and keep those markets juiced, I think artificially, uh, until the election in 2020. But we'll see. I mean, we have a record amount of bond debt out there. Uh, we still have a very difficult geopolitical situation out there in the world. I do not think the president's quote-unquote deal with China is really going to fix the U.S.-China problem. So a lot of risk factors still. A lot of risk factors. And, Rana, before I let you go, one of them is, of course, Europe. Today as well, I just want to talk about mm -hmm. it. We had manufacturing in Germany still looking quite weak. What's interesting here, again, we have to remind everybody, we have negative yields in Germany on, on mm -hmm. their uh, treasury bills. The issue here, though, Rana, is we've got perhaps Christine Lagarde again coming in, perhaps as a central banker for Europe. What can monetary policy do when fiscal policy, both in the United States and Europe, uh, looks like it's really hamstrung right now? You know, that is the um, $64 million question. It, it, I don't think it can do a lot, to be honest. Um, you know, I, my last book was about this topic. I think we've had actually 40 years of monetary policy sort of papering over uh, various problems in, in the Western world and developed economies. And I think that we're really at an end of, of what can do. I and mean, you see that every time central banks try and put a little more kerosene on the fire, the markets don't respond as well as they used to in the past. Um, now, that said, I would say that I think Europe is fundamentally a little stronger than people think. I mean, you do see banks still lending to corporations. Um, you see consumer sentiment in some economies being stronger. So I'm not worried Europe's about to fall off a cliff, but I don't think there's a lot more that central bankers can do for the global economy. Yeah, which will be a problem if we do indeed get into some trouble. Uh, Rana, yes. thanks so much. Have a, have a lovely weekend, and I hope there is a barbecue in your future somewhere, somehow. <laughs> Thank you, Paula. <laughs> Thank you. Appreciate it. Now, we move on to those global market movers. Shares of semiconductor company Qualcomm are lower. Now, it's being dragged down, of course, by Samsung. We discussed that before, the South Korean electronics giant. 
warned that its second quarter profits likely plunged by more than half compared to the previous year. And that brings us to, of course, Micron shares, which are also lower for the same reason. It was also hit by the warning from Samsung that, of course, weak chip demand is hurting profits. They are still looking for that elusive rebound there. And shares of Kellogg, this is interesting, are rallying. Now, this is an article about the food maker. It says it is sitting on a, wait for it, fake meat gold mine that was bigger than Beyond Meat. Now, the Barron's article reminded investors that Kellogg's Morningstar Farms is still the largest meat substitute operation in the United States. And we will continue to follow that story now. Retaking the title of the world's fastest growing economy. Not an easy thing to do. It is an ambitious target that is set. But how does India intend to get there? We'll have details on India's latest budget. That's next. about foreign investment as India's new finance minister wants to make it a $5 trillion economy by 2025. That also means doubling the growth in that economy. That's just one of the ambitious targets set in the latest budget unveiled this Friday. It's the first one since Prime Minister Narendra Modi was re-elected by a landslide. Gaurav Chaudhry is a deputy executive editor at moneycontrol.com at CNN's sister TV network, News 18. He joins us now from New Delhi. Uh, and not a lot of surprises in this budget. Uh, and yet, what are they looking for in terms of trying to attract that FDI, that foreign direct investment, which they hope will help this economy really take off? Uh, so uh, this this was the first budget uh, of 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 this Narendra Modi government's second term, and uh, clearly there was a lot of expectations riding on it, uh, coming as it does in the middle of a slowdown. In in the January to March quarter, the Indian economy grew actually by 5.8 percent. Although in in 2018-19, and India follows April to March uh, financial year system, uh, it grew at 6.8 percent. Uh, while India is still the fastest growing major economy in annualized terms, uh, it's still it, it, it's in the mid, middle of a serious slowdown precipitated by a consumption spending slide and and, and this can be this can be seen from various proxy indicators say for instance people are buying fewer cars and and it is and the car sales in fact has slumped to multi-year lows so there was a lot of expectations riding on it also on the, on the also on the aspect that uh, this government was expected to make a lot of big announcements on the farm sector Indian Indian agriculture is currently in 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 the middle of a persistent distress particularly uh, uh, because farmers have been demanding debt write-offs and various kinds of state uh, support from uh, state governments which, uh, which uh, have been coming about. And uh, uh, the central government, uh, before going to elections in the interim budget presented in February, actually gave out an in a direct income support scheme to the extent that 6,000 rupees was transferred to, uh, annually, was transferred to farmers who own two hectares of land or less. Uh, uh, shortly after uh, coming to office and uh, coming to power and assuming office, uh, one of the first decisions that this government took was to universalize that income support scheme to include all farmers, not just those who own two hect hectares of land or less. In fact, on also extended also to those who own more than two hectares of land, as well as those who are landless. So they did them demonstrate their intent to walk the talk so far as rural distress is concerned, because this more than anything else, this is a very large, strong political 
political constituency which they don't want to antagonize. Uh, but coming coming to the uh, consuming class, this budget was expected to give a lot of tax breaks to the in to individuals uh, in the form of uh, you know giving them uh, bringing down their tax taxes in the form of a rejig in tax slabs and rate rates. That did not come about. So uh, the vast India's vast consuming middle class and the salaried class probably is a trifle disappointed with what uh, the finance minister Nirmala Sitaraman announced in parliament today. But what she did, however, was to bring down the headline corporate income tax rate to 25% from 30% for most companies. Uh, to uh, and and uh, for most companies, in fact, the headline corporate uh, the corporate income tax rate for 99.3% of Indian corporates now stand at 25%, and only 0.7% of Indian companies, based on a certain turnover threshold, will have to pay a higher corporate income tax rate. Individual income tax rates remain unchanged as of now, and uh, this is a signal to the corporates to uh, go and invest in, 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 in with the surplus that they will have by paying fewer taxes. Right, and, and in seeing what happens, we will really have to see if it really manages to move that growth rate. Uh, Gaurav Chaudhary, thanks so much for uh, going through those budget numbers for us. He joins us live from New Delhi. Thank you. Meantime, Greek Prime Minister Alexis Tsipras is fighting for his political life this weekend. Now, Greeks look set to vote out that populist politician and vote in really one of the country's most established political parties. Now, this is as Greece tries to move past years of crisis and hardship, of course, with all of those bailouts. Eleni Giocos has more for us. Call it the battle of the billboards. Greek Prime Minister Alexis Tsipras and opponent Kyriakos Mitsotakis are ready for their face-to-face -face showdown to lead a post-bailout Greece. The vote comes after Tsipras was forced to dissolve parliament and call for a snap vote, following his party's humiliating defeat in EU and local elections. I will ask the President of the Republic to immediately call national elections so that the Greek people will make the final decision. Now, that final decision is near as Greeks head to the ballot box. Mitsotakis' centre-right New Democracy Party has taken a commanding lead in the polls. Investors believe it's not a question of whether Tsipras's Syriza party will lose, but by how much. The question is only if uh, New Democracy will be able to form a government on its own or if they will need a coalition partner and whether the new government will have a strong majority to be able to implement very much needed economic reforms. Tsipras's fall from grace is a stunning reversal from four years ago. Back then, he won a resounding victory on an anti-austerity platform. A Greek exit from the Eurozone seemed a real possibility. Fiery protests rocked the streets. Then, in mid-2015, Tsipras made a grand pivot and agreed to the harsh bailout terms he had campaigned so strongly against. Grexit never happened. Last year, the Greek bailout program ended, wrapping up almost 10 years of emergency support. The country's economy is finally growing again. That's a plus for Syriza. But harsh budget cuts and crippling taxes continue to pummel the middle class. Mitsotaki says his pro-business, low-tax policies are what Greece needs to jumpstart growth. Growing at 1-2% to 2 is simply not enough for the Greek people. Uh, I'm aiming at a much higher growth rate. But this can only happen if you can stimulate some serious investment.
A stable business-friendly government will please investors. Greek stocks have risen roughly 17% since the May EU vote and bond yields are at record lows. But ordinary Greeks worry that their economic safety nets will suffer under new democracy. Mitsotakis may get his chance to govern, but Syriza will be ready to battle again if his growth plan falters. Eleni Jaka, CNN, New York. Something we'll be watching closely this weekend. Still to come here on First Move, swinging into summer. Spider-Man arrives on the silver screen. Is it just in time? Can he pull this movie season out of its slump? And welcome back to First Move. Spider-Man is coming to the rescue, is he? The music industry certainly hopes he is. You gonna be the next Iron Man now? Well, no, I don't have time. I'm too busy doing your jobs. I'm kidding, I'm kidding. Look, keep up the good work because I am going on vacation. Okay, Spider-Man, far from home, is expected to make $125 million at the North American box office over its six-day holiday opening, the summer movie season. Really, though, it needs a hero, let me tell you, after a raft of sequels that fell flat. So what's gone wrong? Eric Davis is managing editor of movie ticketing company Fandango, and he joins me now. You know, I have to say, there was nothing wrong with Spider-Man in terms of the reviews. There seems to have been nothing wrong with all of these sequels. Are we at a, a real inflection point with the big studios and these movies? I mean, what's going on? You know, I think it has a couple of things. The movies in June were okay. You know, they there was a Men in Black reprisal that uh, did not meet audience demand. The Godzilla movie, the Pikachu movie. I think, you know, Disney is, is listening to this conversation and they're saying, what do you mean the box office is down? You know, uh, Avengers Endgame, Aladdin, Toy Story 4, even backing up to Captain Marvel, all did well. They also have a Lion King uh, coming out, expected to be one of the biggest movies of the year. But I think we do need to note that some of the biggest summer movies, some of the movies that people expect to make the most amount at the box office haven't come out yet. Beginning with Spider-Man Far From Home, uh, 125 million. It broke records. Uh, biggest Tuesday opening of all time at 39 and a half million. And then we have The Lion King. And we have uh, a Quentin Tarantino movie, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. We have a Fast and Furious spinoff, Hobbs and Shaw. Globally, those franchises, uh, that franchise does spectacular at the box office. And so I think that the summer will rebound. I think July will be a much better month than June. And yet we've already had Endgame, Avengers Endgame, which was colossal, broke records everywhere. Do you see this, though, as kind of a restructuring? I mean, remember, TV, streaming, having all of those moments compiled together. In terms of the way you make money from movies now, especially those blockbusters, what's changed? Well, I think there's definitely more demand in terms of your your attention. You know, there's movies and TV shows everywhere on every platform. And so you have to make a little noise. And when it comes to sort of getting people out of the house and going to the movie theaters, it really does rely on demand. What do people want to see? You know, I feel like something like Men in Black 
didn't perform as well. Maybe audiences didn't need a new Men in Black movie. And so, you know, you look at something like The Lion King, I feel like that one, the live action remakes, Disney remakes have been doing well. People like to revisit. There's nostalgia at play there. And so that film, I think, will do really well at the box office. The superhero movies doing really well as, as well. So I think it depends on demand and studios looking out to their audience, listening to the audience, saying, what do you want to see? And making those movies instead of just rehashing franchises hoping that people will go see them when in reality they're like i did not need another one of those in my life yeah and it's such a good point right eric if you're a movie studio right now you got to think what's going to get these people off the couch and and you need to do a lot more to get them off that couch having said that what's also changed in the movie industry itself because you know in terms of the ticketing company fandango uh, which you work for we're talking about these big movie theaters right now what are they doing in terms of trying to get people into those seats because there's been a lot of them in north america side a lot of competition as well to get those theaters, those screens up and running and get those blockbusters on those screens when they want them to release. Yeah, and what we're seeing is we're just seeing a more luxurious experience, you know? So if you're used to kicking back in your recliner in your living room, then guess what? Your local theater will, will likely be retrofitted with an even more comfortable recliner that's there. They're serving you different kinds of food, you know, an upgraded food menu. You can get your food to your seat. You can get alcohol in a lot of theaters. Uh, a lot of the big chains, like AMC, my local AMC has a bar in the lobby of its theater. And so they're just making it, like, a better experience you know getting out of the house uh it's still one of the cheaper ways to sort of have a fun night out i feel like you can't really leave the house without spending a hundred dollars these days and so i think going to the movies is still uh, a good choice if you want to get out of the house and have a comfortable experience and my advice is to seek out those theaters look do some research in your right. neighborhood and find out which theaters have the more luxurious experience because when you sit back and you kick back it's great Eric, it's funny, the only movie I've seen is Avengers Endgame, and the only way they got my husband and I, my kids, to go see it was, they said there are recliners. It's over three hours, but you'll be in a recliner the whole time. <laughs> and in fact, as you said, it was a much better experience that way. Eric, we'll continue to check in with you again as this blockbuster season continues. Appreciate it. Take care. Now, and finally, oh, what a birthday. Take a listen. Sony Walkman is a tiny stereo cassette player with truly incredible sound. On this show today, this device single-handedly responsible for all of my hearing loss. Yes, Sony introduced the Walkman to the world 40 years ago this week. I can't believe it. I had two. They were yellow. The world sat up and listened and, yes, walked. Okay, we didn't walk that much. Sony sold 50,000 in the first two months alone and went on to rack up 400 million in sales. I know that doesn't sound like a lot now, but it really is. Apple co-founder Steve Wozniak said the company had Sony in its sights from day one. He said, quote, no other company in the world was the model for consumer electronics. In its first decade, the Walkman became such a cultural icon as it raked in millions. Even in the 1990s, it weren't so bad. The Walkman weathered changing audio formats as cassettes gave way to CDs and then to digital music. But in 2001, Apple took a big bite with this. Hey, mama, this, that beat that make you move, mama. Get on the floor and move. 
responsible for other people's hearing loss. The millennial cousin to Sony's Gen X Walkman, the iPod. And with it, Apple had figured out how to walk the walk and turn it into a dance. The rest, as I will say to you right now, is history. Just three years after Steve Jobs launched the iPhone in 2007, the Walkman faced the music, Sony announcing, unfortunately, it would be discontinued. I can tell you, I can probably still find mine in my basement. That was first move for today. I wanna let you know, though, right now, that futures are still down. I wouldn't get too excited about it, though. Again, this is on pretty thin volume. I'm Paula Newton, the iDesk is next. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.